1: That they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything. Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going.
0: If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone.
1: If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, Hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests.
0: Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. Lovers like
2: bees lead a honeyed life. I wish...
0: jenny williamson and i'm jen McMenemy. and this is ancient history fangirl so today we are so so thrilled and excited to welcome best-selling author of the wolf den elodie harper onto the show welcome elodie hey guys it's lovely to be with you it is so awesome to talk to you i was just really thrilled that you were going to come on the show because i really loved your book
1: <laughs> me too it's going to be i'm sure in my top three of the year so good Oh, thank you.
0: That's really kind. I think what I loved so much about it is that I was doing all this research for um, a series of sex worker episodes and I was seeing all the stuff I'd found in my research in your book. So I can't wait to talk about that stuff.
2: Oh, that's really cool. I look forward to talking about it too.
0: Um, Okay. So, uh, Elodie, what inspired you to write this story?
2: So, I guess a whole bunch of stuff. So, I've always wanted to write about the ancient world um, and in trying to sort of think about what I wanted to focus on. You know, Pompeii is such an inspiring site, because I knew that I wanted to write about ordinary people. And, you know, there's very hard to imagine another place anywhere that so much material survives from the lives of ordinary people from the Roman Empire. And within Pompeii itself, the Lupana is such a famous building, it's in such an extraordinary state of repair. You can go in there. You can see the paintings on the walls. You know, there's records of exactly what the graffiti says. It's, it's a really evocative building. And it is very famous. And yet, the way that it's famous is not really centered around the people who lived and worked there. You know, it's almost kind of like, I, I don't want to be really harsh and say it's almost like a joke, but it's a kind of titillating, oh, we're going to the brothel, haha, type idea of the way that it's looked at.
1: Yeah, when you take, I remember taking a tour and that's exactly how they treated it. It was like, oh, we're going to go to the brothel and ha 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 ha, ha! you know, look at all the phalluses around. And I was like, "Okay, I mean, but people lived and died and worked here like. Yeah, exactly.
2: Exactly. So I wanted to look at a really famous building and a really famous place and try and tell the story in a completely new way. Um, And one that wouldn't kind of fall into the stereotypes of how sex workers or prostituted women are looked at, you know, either the kind of utter relentless misery or the awful, awful, sorry to use the term, happy hookers kind of storytelling, you know, which is really kind of male gaze and titillating. And it's so obsessed with the sex work and not with the people. So I think, you know, at the risk of sounding a bit backwards, I wanted to write about sex workers or prostituted women in The Brothel, a book that did not focus on the sex. So it's thinking about all the other aspects of their lives, who they might have been as people, what they might have hoped, what it might have really felt like to have been in that environment you know, how they might have thought about themselves, how other people might have thought about them. So that was really the focus. And to sort of try and think about what enjoyment might you get out of life, what relationships might you form, you know, what would be the happier parts of it, as well as looking at the fact that this this is a really harsh environment for anyone to find themselves in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't hard to get into. Um, or, or did you find yourself just kind of diving right in? I think it was really kind of diving right
2: in. I mean, it is, you know, you can't go to the site and not be moved by the site itself, but by the Lupana in particular. And we were talking about how people kind of laugh at the brothel. And I wanted these women to really be laughing back, if you like, you know, this is their perspective and to really try and centre what their perspective might have been. And the graffiti that you get in the brothel, I mean, some of it's you know, exactly as you would expect, kind of customers boasting or whatever. But there is some humour in there too, and some poignancy and some expressions potentially of personality like Victoria, who's a character in my book, there's graffiti in the brothel in which somebody's called Victoria Victrix, Victoria the conqueror a kind of quite forceful, boastful character, potentially, or at least that's how I chose to see her. And then um, references to some customer called Mr. Garlic Farticus, which is (laughs) which I put in there. Um, And if I saw somebody, somebody had put a comment going, Oh, this author, you know, she's so immature, like making this stuff up. And it's like, no, it's definitely on the wall. Can we talk about what other graffiti you took from Pompeii to put in your book? So um, I used, you know, a lot of Pompeii inscriptions at the top of each chapter heading, and those are all, all real to sort of give a sense of it. I mean, I made some up as well to sort of be in the style of the graffiti. So when I have specific characters writing to each other in the book via graffiti, that's, that's my made up stuff. But I mean, graffiti informed the book a lot from kind of actual characters names to um, the tavern that was opposite the elephant Inn. the landlord there was called Citius. And, you know, his graffiti about himself. So that's how I I knew how to name that character. And I think just the kind of humor and the way that people communicated via graffiti really informed the very sort of colloquial language of the book and the way I had the characters speak. You know, there's graffiti in a bar in which two guys are arguing over who the waitress fancies um, and who's better looking and who she might like and, you know, who should give up now, all this kind of stuff. And the way that people kind of answered each other back, um, somebody's written on one wall, uh, lovers like bees lead a honeyed life, and somebody else has written underneath, I wish. So, <laughs> you know, that particular exchange really informed how I imagined the women speaking. That's such a, like,
1: poetic exchange, too. (laughs) Like, it's not what you'd see, like, in the bathrooms in London. (laughs) No, I mean, and this is the thing about the graffiti. I mean,
2: some of it really is what you'd see on the bathrooms in, in, in London, you know, but some of it really isn't, you know, you've got some really poignant stuff of people kind of declaring their love. There was Amara my main character does fall in love with with a guy who's not a customer who's also enslaved and their kind of the vibe of their relationship was kind of based off this graffiti that's outside the theater which is written by a slave girl Methé about her love crestus and it's just written in a very innocent touching way so yeah i tried to sort of take different aspects of this graffiti to have a think about how people might have sounded how they, what they might have been preoccupied with
0: what was that graffiti Oh,
2: Mephe, uh, it's something like, uh, I can't remember the whole thing, but it's its basically Methae, the slave girl of um, Caminia, you know, praying to Venus that she'll smile on her love with Crestus and that they'll always be in harmony together. It's just very touching. Oh,
1: that's really sweet. You just don't see that in London. You <laughs> <laughs> don't see it in Brooklyn either. I mean, <laughs> just that I think about it. <laughs> yeah, probably not.
2: Some somebody asked me, actually, was it was the graffiti like social media uh, of its time? And actually, maybe I mean, I had I really hadn't thought of it that way when I was writing. But maybe maybe there's an element of that as well There's quite a performative aspect to it.
0: Like if someone was to ask you what your favorite graffiti on, on the walls of Pompeii would be, what would it be?
2: I mean, probably those two examples I've given about the, the, the lovers like lead a Honeyed Life and the, the Mefe graffiti. But I mean, there's just so much. I mean, some of the election graffiti even is, is really funny. But things like when people are trying to slander somebody. And I, I can't remember who it is. Like all the thieves say vote for X candidate, you know. So it's a kind of a way of undermining someone.
0: It, it reminds me of, um, of Brutus, Jen, remember in the, C- in the Caesar series and all the graffiti, all the walls of Rome started to talk to him and urge him to kill Caesar. Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, graffiti spoke to people. Although it doesn't tell you a whole story, it's very
2: human. You know, it's these snapshots in time. You know, some of it's very considered, like there are some love poems that are quite professional. Other Hearts, you know, they're quite sort of poetic just in the expressions that they're they're having of he who does not know how to defend himself doesn't know how to live. You know, it's it's just kind of it could mean many different things. And then other stuff that's just really sad, like, you know, I hate your pregnancy, Salvilla. Gosh. <laughs> God. You just think, is that some awful boyfriend who's angry that this woman's pregnant? Or
0: it's like so needlessly harsh. <laughs> yeah
2: yeah and I mean a lot a lot of graffiti connected to uh, sex work and prostitution as well and you know Mary Beard suggests that we can't take all of this at face value that some of it's actually insults like saying you can have such and such for 10 pence or whatever you know the kind of stuff you might get at a bus stop somebody slagging off someone they don't like saying she's cheap or whatever so it, it might not all be about sex work basically
0: Totally. And it's kind of like taking what people write on bar bathroom stalls now and deciding that this is, you know, a historical document that is accurate.
2: Yeah, exactly. So it's accurate in the sense that it's, it's expressing something that somebody thought or felt at the time. But we can't, you know, be 100% sure how
1: tongue in cheek some of the stuff is. When you started researching this book, were there any assumptions you had about what sex workers' lives were like that changed as you did your research?
2: So, I didn't have too many assumptions about sex workers' lives, but what did change for me was just how sex work was absolutely not restricted to sex workers, and the extent to which sexual abuse really was endemic to the lives of anyone who didn't have wealth and power, particularly if you were enslaved. I mean, Absolutely, if you were enslaved, you had absolutely no bodily integrity whatsoever, including sexually, and this was kind of really the whole point of being enslaved as far as the people who weren't enslaved was was concerned, and how they differentiated themselves, that they had bodily integrity, and this other group of people didn't. I really didn't want this book to be a a commentary in any way on um, sex trafficking in our modern world or or the sex trade or sex workers today at all. I mean, I really steered clear of that. It's not about trying to create modern parallels in any way, because it's just so very, very profoundly different. But I guess one thing that I did think about is, you know, today, a lot of the stigma is so concentrated on sex workers, whereas then this sort of sense of sex work was carried over into a whole bunch of professions. So if you were a waitress, if you were just a maid in a house, and you were, you know, youngish and attractive, male or female, uh, that was the other thing that really kind of took me aback as well was just how very pervasive male rape was, and sort of culturally accepted that that would be the case. So that you know, I I guess I kind of had the assumption that the sex workers would be really out on a limb, as it were, and that they would be the people who would be enduring this particularly difficult form of abuse, whereas actually that form of abuse was really widespread.
0: There was a book about, you know, regular people's lives in ancient Rome that I read cover to cover, I think at the very beginning of starting this podcast was it invisible romans
2: i love that book invisible romans is such a good book
0: it might have been that it might have been but um it was a while ago but um the thing that stuck out to me that i'm just remembering that's based on what you said is that um women who were uh waitresses in like bars and taverns were seen as sexually available and so like i don't know sex work was part of their job or was this consensual sex work like hard to tell for me I think we don't really know. I think you
2: kind of have to assume that a lot of the stuff wasn't consensual, really, given the fact that people were frequently owned. So whether they would be employed that way would be up to the boss who also owned them. However, you know, it is also possible thinking back to that graffiti about the barmaid Iris and successus the weaver and his rival sort of talking about who she fancied more it's also because sexual attitudes, you know, further down the social scale may have been quite profoundly different to the elite sexual attitudes of, you know, like women had to be virgins until they married, etc. It may be that, you know, some of these relationships were consensual, and they had less sort of rigid sense of how people were, were supposed to behave. I mean, it was something that Invisible Romans kind of touches on, is the idea that, people who are enslaved had very loving relationships, and which they regarded as marriages, but they didn't have any control over what might happen to their partner. So you know, your partner might be being interfered with by the boss, and you have no, no control over this whatsoever. But you still love your partner, your partner loves you. And it's a kind of way of negotiating around that. So I think one of the challenges of looking at this particular era is some of the elite writing about sexual purity, particularly where women are concerned. It isn't necessarily how people would have seen themselves because they could simply couldn't have lived that way.
1: I think a lot of that idea of sexual purity too comes from our much more modern lens. You know, like, as we say all the time, your Christian monk is showing like there's a lot of stuff that it's like so much of our history has been filtered down through that lens where sexual purity and that kind of thing. Was super important, whereas, in particularly in the lower classes um, in ancient Roman Greece, like I don't think that was as big a thing because it wasn't something that necessarily you had any control over.
2: Absolutely zero control, so far as I can see.
0: You know, a lot of the time, both men and women you have to look at how these documents come down to us as well. You know, like the elite writers and thinkers of ancient Rome, would have been, their documents would have been copied down by hand by Christian monks in the 1000s AD. And that's how we get that document and then translated by gentlemen scholars in the 1800s. Whereas the graffiti in Pompeii is just people talking to us directly.
2: Yes, exactly. And from all different social backgrounds, you'd have to have a certain degree of, of education to be literate. But Again, that's quite an open question about what sections of society were literate. You know, we've got graffiti from a slave girl, an enslaved young woman in Pompeii. So she could presumably write perfectly fine.
0: The town of Pompeii as a whole. I remember having a a conversation with a friend of mine a few days ago who is in, you know, sort of casually interested in history. And we were talking about Pompeii. And that person said, Oh, yeah, well, everyone knows that Pompeii was just sort of this resort town for wealthy people. How accurate is that? And what do we know about Pompeii's like red light district and, you know, all that stuff? We don't necessarily think that Pompeii had a zoning
2: system. There's not huge evidence that it had a zoning system. And it doesn't seem to have only been a a pleasure town, you know, it had fairly significant industries like the garum production that went all over the roman empire and stuff i mean by that was kind of known but notorious as a, as a pleasure resort but um i think pompeii was was pretty much you know a working town it has got a bit of a kind of sailor vibe to it uh, i think Bethany hughes talks about it you know lots it's, it's a port town and sailors would come in and use the brothel or whatever, but it, it definitely doesn't nothing that I've read suggests that it was like a sex town or a party town. It's it's a regular, fairly sizable regional centre, as you say, um, Jen, with like a you know an arena for gladiators. It's got a big theater, it's got a big forum.
0: Can we talk about the sex industry in Pompeii specifically and what discoveries have been made archaeologically that tell us more about what these women's lives were like? Okay, so in terms
2: of you know, what the sex trade was like in Pompeii. It's a pretty fraught and uh, much disagreed upon area. So I think the honest answer would be we don't know masses about it for absolute certain, but there are certain things that we know. We do know for almost certain that all these fallacies around town were nothing to do with brothels whatsoever. So I guess, you know, people who think these are pointing the ways to brothels, nope. Secondly, you know, there used to be this idea that there were absolutely masses of brothels in Pompeii because there's a lot of sexually explicit painting on the walls. Whereas now it's more popular to assume that actually the Romans just liked sexy paintings, you know, and it doesn't designate a brothel at all. The one thing that we do know with absolute certainty is that there is one surviving brothel, which is where I set the book, which is the, the Lupana which is this building with the five different cells with a lot of sexual graffiti on price and positions and all the rest of it and um the erotic frescoes above each door depicting sexual scenes so that particular building is one of the places where you can kind of make some assumptions about what sex work was like in Pompeii however that itself is then open to multiple interpretations so it's possible and generally thought the most likely is that the women working there were enslaved, um, you know, owned by a pimp who may or may not have lived in the flat above. But it's also possible that the women might have worked freelance there, either owned or even possibly free, though most likely owned. So I did feel like I had multiple choices open to me as to how I would choose to depict the story. I wanted set characters within the brothel. I absolutely could not have endured writing a book where, you know, one of the options is that the women were simply not allowed to leave, that they would have been stuck there. Who wants to read that book? Um, Definitely not me. I wouldn't want to write it. So what I did do was kind of take different aspects of what we know about sex work in ancient Rome and combine them with the story of the brothels. So, you know, we know that some women were streetwalkers and would go out looking for custom. It's possible that women working in the Lupana would have done that. For my purposes, it serves a much better story if that's what they do. So that's what they were doing. You know, I found it much more interesting if they had a kind of household scenario where there was a pimp based on site. you know, and his relationship with them. Um, we do know that that's how a lot of brothels worked. I mean, Seneca's declamations, uh, which is a court case of a woman who wanted to become a, um, a priestess who had worked in a brothel that actually tells us a fair amount about brothels about how they were this kind of community so a lot of the community that is in the book is based on on that court case for me you know the fact that the pimp has this kind of he's very involved in their lives they are kind of like a a community of people so that's moved off from Pompeii but I guess what I'm trying to say is that you know I had to take things from lots of different places in terms of sources, court cases, literature, archaeological evidence, all kinds of stuff. There's also, you know, a lot of evidence in Pompeii that, as we were talking about in bars, that prostitution may have gone in, a lot of ordinary people may have just done a bit of prostitution on the side. It's possible that it went on in a very grand house as well, um, the House of the Vetty. So... I guess all bets are off, really. We can't know exactly how it worked. There are just all these clues. And so I sort of built the story around that.
0: Before this launches, we will have dropped several episodes about sex work in ancient classical Greece. The way that I presented it, the way that I saw it presented so much, and the way that I decided to present it just to just to keep things organized and kind of coherent, was to talk about different layers of sex work. You could be a porni, you could be a hatira. There were lots of layers of strata of sex workers between those whose lives operated in different ways. What I was seeing historically was that it seems to be kind of a question how, rigid the lines of demarcation were between these people's different lives, you know, and um, the way that you depicted it in your book was so fluid. I thought that was so interesting, the way that you kind of drew different aspects of, you know, a sex worker's life from different strata to depict these women's lives.
2: Yes, that's definitely something that I aim to do. I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, I know less about the sex trade in ancient Greece, except that the, one of the only things I know is that it was a lot more stratified, partly because the position of women was so different, so Hetera and Greece were a bigger deal in many ways than in ancient Rome, where because wives could obviously play a much fuller part in political and social life, you know men and women could eat together, so the sort of need for hetero was less in Rome, even though there were still very powerful courtesans who played a kind of equivalent role higher up the scale so I certainly did make a conscious choice to look at different aspects of sex work that probably would would have been less likely to have been combined in the life of a single woman as they are in Amara in my book. But I did try to keep it as plausible as possible. So the fact that she can play a musical instrument, um, which grants her an in to performing at parties. I mean, there were whole classes of women who were neither courtesans, hetera, nor pornai who were sort of hired slaves who would perform at parties, they would be musicians and they would also be generally expected to provide sex as well, you know, whether they were particularly keen on that aspect of the job or not, because um, Cicero had a, had a court case in which a mime actress actually amazingly brought a rape case um, and she lost because uh, Cicero was like, well, you know, everyone knows they can have sex with a mime actress. It's hardly any big deal.
0: Thanks, Cicero. It's a horrified face right now.
2: I'm just still happy that Fulvia got his tongue. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is pretty depressing when you when you go back in history and these these sort of great figures that are admirable in some ways are just really horrendous, particularly where women are concerned. <laughs>
1: One of the things that I just loved, I don't think it's a question we've got, is you just have such a strong sense of sisterhood and of each of the the women who are enslaved in the wolf den looking out for each other. And I just really loved how you weave people into the story, you know, of varying sort of experiences of living within the Roman Empire, like understanding the language, and they're just very supportive of each other. There's a lot of heaviness, obviously, because of the subject matter, but their friendships and the way they were just it really was so compelling and intriguing to me.
0: I'm wondering if that was reflected in the um, court case of Seneca, as you told us about, about the community. So, I mean, in, in Seneca's declamations, it's, it's seen in quite a
2: negative way that the idea that this woman who was kidnapped by pirates and sold into a brothel, very much the basis that my character Dido, has that's how she's ended up in the in in the brothel in the wolf den and the lawyers kind of saying well sorry use their language but you know the other whores will have you will have eaten with them you would have laughed and joked with them they will have taught you how to move your body you know the pimp will have like expected you to bring the cash in you know sort of seeing this as a really communal effort I guess also grooming really in in the case of the court case We also know sort of looking outside the um, brothel that, you know, enslaved people were not allowed families. You know, the law did not recognise any familial ties whatsoever, not a child, not a parent, not a sibling, not a spouse. And so they formed often incredibly close communities within the people that they were enslaved with. that, That was their family. So for the women in the brothel, you know, there's the five of them in there, they might never ever get out um, until they're, you know, too old. That's all they have. So I really didn't think it was going to be this kind of catty, bitchy fight fest in there. I thought that's not how you would probably react to that situation. You would react by looking out for one another's personal safety from a purely practical point of view, frankly, that you know, you'd want to take care of each other. But also, if you're being looked at in a particular way and having to behave in a, in a particular way, you need some kind of outlet. So I just imagined them laughing at the customers together, laughing at, at their boss, just wanting to enjoy their lives as much as possible. And, you know, I know that, like, particularly from the focus that we've had in, in this podcast, thinking about the sex work, I did want it to be a largely humorous book, not Laughing at the women, but the way that they might laugh, you know what they might find funny, how they would cope, yeah, so I really enjoyed writing that aspect of the book, and the women are also different as well, as you say, they come from different parts of the empire, and their roots into slavery really informs how they respond to the situation they're in so Dido, like in you know seneca's court case she's she's a kidnapped victim by pirates, so it's it's a complete shock for her Amara as Many people were in the ancient world, you know, her family become destitute. So she's sold into slavery as a means of survival and she's ended up in a, in a brothel. Um, and then the other, the other three women were born into slavery, which again was a route. Victoria in particular was, you know, an abandoned baby who's picked up as a slave that way. So Victoria, for instance, you know, Victoria the Conqueror from the graffiti. She's the only one, I guess, that, that conforms to a more don't want to say stereotype because I would hate to think of her as a stereotype but you know the kind of out there feisty sex worker who you know gets the customers in Victoria conforms more to that idea because the way she's dealing with her life is to just completely embrace it every aspect of it and be the best at it that she can be although you know as the book goes on we see that that's something of a front um as well for her so yeah they're all very different. They're all very protective of Dido, the one who was kidnapped, who's very vulnerable. Amara's the really angry one, who's just determined to get out. Cressa um, is the slightly older one, who's much more troubled. And Berenice is—I've got a real soft spot for Berenice. She's the, she's she's kind of the naive one that's wildly in love with the doorman, who's such a creep, but um, she's a sweetie. We've all either been Berenice or had a friend like Berenice who just goes on and on and on about some crappy boyfriend.
0: <laughs> so, oh, I've both been that person and I've been the person making fun of that person. Not to say like meanly making fun, but just kind of rolling my eyes and going, God, he's not that great. Calm down.
2: Exactly. That's, I think we've all been Berenice and we've all had a Berenice in in, a, in our friendship group at some point. And, and I, I kind of wanted their relationship, Berenice, and, and I'm not going to say which the guy, is but like he is a creep but he's not unrelentingly awful you know he's not like a monster he's just he's just not what she thinks he is
0: maybe not worthy of this level of veneration but he's not like a
1: stereotype villain either then again who else does she encounter in her life you know she doesn't have a skill where she goes out to parties she's not leaving like i guess if you're going to pick someone to be your protector boyfriend he's not the worst
2: yeah And without, you know, and without spoilers, you know, maybe I'm writing book two at the moment. Maybe she wasn't so dim after all, where he's concerned. So
1: we'll see. So the party scenes, which no spoilers, but there are some very epic parties that uh, Amara goes to and Dinah goes to. And I just wanted to like talk to you a little bit about like how you recreated those scenes, where the inspiration for that came from, particularly the songs, like where the idea for some of the songs came from.
2: So the parties, um, a lot of that is just wild imagination, I have to say. But um, there's <laughs> um, no, there's Petronius's um, Satyricon. So the very first party is like heavily based on Trimalchio's feast from Petronius' Petronius's Satyricon, which is in his very famous book, which is set in a, a town in Campania, possibly Pompeii, ten years before the eruption of Vesuvius. So it's very, very contemporary to the time that I'm writing. And in his version, Trimalchio is this really kind of nouveau riche, awful freedman. Who's? It, it's a very funny, brilliantly written scene, but it's extremely sneering at the freedman. So, when I wrote that scene, I wanted the freedman really not to be the person that's being sneered at. But we're kind of looking at the, at the more patrician characters and their snobbery and how they behave, and that actually this Friedman's trying to impress them, and he's you know he's never going to succeed. But what I did take from Trimalchio's Feast was just like the insanely lavish, ostentatious food, the performance, just the extravagance of it that, you know, is quite eye opening for Amara and would probably have been for any kind of musical entertainer slash sex worker who would have been from a very poor background kind of shipped in to entertain at these Parties. Uh, and it's possible, you know, some of the archaeological evidence at, at Pompeii suggests there may have been so called sex parties.
0: We definitely came across in our research, and it was more about classical Greece, but there so many parallels. And I didn't do a deep dive into ancient Rome, um, but some parallels. And one of them that we came across is um, group sex at the symposia as a thing that happened.
2: Yeah. So it's possible that there is something that suggests that in Pompeii. I mean, That's how I've chosen to interpret it. I mean, I didn't just make it up. It it is kind of discussed in books as to whether that is is a possibility. But we do know that, you know, the Romans had very different views of privacy to us. You know, like guys in the Lupana write about like going out on the kind of several guys all together going for a joint experience at, at the Lupana. And a lot of the erotic frescoes, you can see poor old... Enslaved people hanging around in the corners with like a towel or a, a glass of wine, you know. So, sex was not always such an intimate act for them. So, there's that aspect with the parties as well, I guess, that it's just kind of sex is another form of entertainment. You know, it may not have happened loads because obviously it, it's so kind of, I think it was pretty titillating for them back at the time because the Saturicon's quite a sort of way out there book. Some of it's just horrendous for the attitudes. But anyway. Yeah, but it, it I think that would not have had the same kind of shock value as it as it would today. I mean, you know, today you really would not expect to turn up to a party and have find that going on, like, unless you'd been seriously pre-warned. And also I should I should say that, you know, I did want to show as well that not all the parties that Amara performs at are like that. You know, there is that one particular guy who's pretty far out, but other times she is literally just there to sing and look attractive and chat. So I, you know, I wanted to strike, strike a balance. And I guess, you know, and, and I hope you back me up here. I didn't want lots of graphic sex scenes or indeed any graphic sex scenes. I tried to be fairly oblique about it and ten it more from the point of view of what's going on in Amara's head rather than what's happening to her body.
1: Yeah. And the only time that you sort of get any sort of romantic or sort of like feelings of like, Amara being present with something happening is when she is with her crush.
2: It was really important to me to try and write a scene in which she's attempting to have agency and attempting to be in touch with her body in a way that's just for her Um, and that that is completely different from all the other stuff that's going on. I mean, I think, you know, intimacy in any time and place is, is quite fraught, particularly for people who've had very negative experiences. I think, you know, going back to your earlier... Question about assumptions. I think one of the things that made me most angry and most upset in the research was you just kind of think that, oh, well, it was different back then and and people just didn't realize. But actually, the more I read of elite writers writing about, you know, enslaved people or sex workers or women (laughs) of any description, I think, I don't know about you, but the times that I found almost more difficult is when. You can actually see that the people who are writing this stuff, they know it's wrong. They know they wouldn't like that to happen to them. So I guess I'd, I'd kind of had this thing of, oh, well, they just didn't think of enslaved people as people or they didn't really think of women as as, as women. And it's like, well, actually, no, they knew that this would not be pleasant. They knew that this would be causing people distress, but they did it anyway. I think I found that quite enraging.
1: It's real difficult to read them as a 21st century woman sometimes. You're just like, oh.
0: Jen, you wanted to know about the, um, the festival,
1: right? One of the things that I found really interesting was you have that festival and we just finished an episode that we recorded about the cult of Aphrodite. So we know a little bit about it, but we were just really wanted to talk to you about how you went about sort of recreating it and why that was so such an important part of, you know, Amara and the women of the the wolf dance life.
2: So the the Vinalia, what we know about it's mainly based on Ovid's Fasti, his his book of festivals, and it's actually pretty fleeting and it, it just talks about were generally assumed to be prostituted women rather than plebeian women offering myrtle and mint and roses to Venus and, you know, to pray for popular favor and and to be witty and charming and, you know, be able to win over men. And it was the Vinalia was was a sort of joint festival for Venus and also Jupiter for wine. So it's like the festival of sex workers and wine. So you can kind of imagine how raucous that was. Before sort of going on to what it means the characters in the book you know, Ovid doesn't give us a huge amount to go on with with what he tells us. So in recreating it, I thought about other things that we know about festivals at that time. That They could be very licentious, that there might be music playing in the street and processions and people out and about and drinking and just general street life merriment. But also in Pompeii, there's a graffiti of I don't think it's Venus, actually, but, you know, people carrying statues of gods on like a, a dais that they're they're carrying through the streets, which is also obviously what still happens in southern Europe for festivals of the Virgin Mary so I kind of combined actual festivals that I've been to in Spain for the Virgin Mary and some of that atmosphere and the way that you know you kind of see this plaster figure that represents the goddess with what we know of the kind of wilder Roman aspect and the the, the music and the drinking and all the rest of it so that's how I created it and the reason why I found it so interesting and really wanted to have it in the book is, you know, obviously the women in the Lupana were very stigmatized and separate and not well-respected members of the community at, at large. But they also, their role is kind of publicly recognized through this festival. And so I really wanted to think about what that might mean for them. And also festivals were kind of traditionally seen as this idea of reversal of fortune or like all bets are off. So it felt like a perfect scene and time for Amara to be attempting to reverse her own fortune. So it's quite a pivotal scene in the book from a a narrative point of view as well. But it it was nice to think about how the women might have felt about that festival themselves, you know, what they might have genuinely asked Venus for.
0: It's so interesting, too, because I saw things that were reflected in our research as well, like the mint and the way that uh, people would worship Aphrodite in ancient Greece was kind of similar in that there was a procession and there were these sort of, I remember like mint and another plant, maybe myrtle or something like wreaths. Yes, myrtle and roses. I was curious about the connections. I'm not sure how much you know about that.
2: Um, I don't know huge amounts. I've read um, Bethany Hughes, Venus and Aphrodite. So, you know, kind of aware of the importance of smell and the particular herbs that were used, et cetera, as a means of, of worship. I mean, for me, my main interest in Venus was role as the patron goddess of sex workers, but also of Pompeii. She was the patron of Pompeii. Her temple is huge. It would have been one of the first things you saw when you approached the city by sea, or not city, sorry, the town by sea. You know, it had its own dedicated road. You know, this is a town where Venus is omnipresent in graffiti and dedications and street street worship, all of that. So that was, I think, one of the things about, you know, the goddesses in the ancient world is, yes, you know, they were Venus Aphrodite as a figure all over the place. But often the sort of local interpretation of a goddess can be quite interesting. So I did sort of mainly stick on, on the sort of Pompeian Venus.
0: Tell us more about the Pompeian Venus. How would she be different than Venus in general? So she's referred to as Venus
2: Pompeiana or Venus and also Venus Fischia. We don't know exactly what Venus Fischia meant, whether it was the natural world or exactly what that, that might have meant. Um, it's probably an Oscan word. But she appears in so many different guises in the town. Like sometimes she is very overtly sexual. Um, So there's a painting of Venus in the shell where she's naked. Other times she's fully clothed and she's more like a really imposing matron. So I found that idea really interesting that the goddess might have very sort of different faces, as it were, and how often she's called upon in the graffiti.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of interesting things with how Venus is sort of, how Venus and Aphrodite start to differ and sort of the Roman version of Venus sometimes can be, like you just think about the myth of Cupid and Psyche, it can be quite different from the sort of wild Aphrodite of Greek mythology. No, I mean,
2: I know a lot less about Aphrodite, but definitely sometimes the Venus in Pompeii is really, you know, she's like the patron of a shop or something, somebody that's quite respectable and, and, and fully clothed although there are a lot of um, paintings in Venus and Mars. So this idea of illicit love as well is is, is also always there.
1: If all of the phalluses weren't to tell you the way to all these brothels, and I've heard you talk about this before, but I want it in our podcast as well. What do you think they were about?
2: So, I mean, it's the million dollar question, why are there so many dicks in Pompeii? So I, I think the idea that they're not about Brothels is fairly, there's just so many, and surely there can't have been that many brothels. And they also seem to have represented good luck. So there's one over a, a bakery, which says, you know, here lives good fortune, and felicitas, and which sort of the idea of prosperity, fertility, you know, wealth, all this kind of stuff going on. So the penises are representing something other than sex a lot of the time. When I first sort of read about it, I thought, oh, okay, you know, it's not really about sex. Then you look again and you think, well, yeah, but actually this is also a lot of very erect penises all over the place. How can this not... Which you don't see in statuary. Not in the same way at all, unless it's like a, a sort of slightly gross comic priapus or something.
1: Yeah, or satyr or, or... That awful one of the goat. Yeah. Yeah. So gross. The sheep one. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, they...
2: They're just, they are, they are really everywhere. And, you know, we can't know exactly what they meant. But I think the sort of two camps of, oh, this is all about brothels and sex versus no, there's nothing to do with brothels and sex. This is all about, you know, good luck charms and warding off the evil eye. And that possibly there's just much more of an overlap than we might feel comfortable with. But one of the things that made me think, this really isn't just about good luck charms, is there? Is a line in Marshall when he talks about a well brought up girl a- averting her eyes if she sees a, a, a Priapus in a garden, you know, a Priapus statue, and so you think, okay, so this is something that a well brought up girl was not supposed to look at. Where can she possibly look in Pompeii because this stuff is everywhere? So I guess for me, it represents just how. Prof- patriarchal the society is this is not a society designed around women you know this is stuff that women shouldn't even be looking at and yet it's everywhere and it's really not for the women's benefit I guess
0: interesting it's almost like you're not you're not supposed to be outside because you might see penises like it's kind of a way of hemming women in
2: I think it's or, or asserting dominance I guess um because you know women did go out and about on the street but it's just it's just asserting. It's vaguely threatening, you know. Sometimes it's kind of comical. Other times it's a bit threatening. So in the brothel, for instance, there's there's a painting of a man with two penises, you know, gigantic penises, and it's like sometimes it's used as a as a threat of rape, you know, a priapus in a garden, like if if you burgle my garden, if you break into this garden, you will be raped. Type idea. I think the symbolism of it is so bound up with the time period, which was so much more patriarchal and violent and male-dominated than is familiar for us.
0: It's really interesting. We touched on this before, Jen, when we talked to Ben Aronovich, and he we were talking about, because um, there are a lot of phalluses on Hadrian's Wall as well, like they're all over Hadrian's Wall.
1: Yep, they're all over, and they're particularly like in liminal spaces, like essentially where you have walls and doorways and stuff so it's just and obviously Hadrian's wall was was built a lot later but it's just one of those mysteries that like would be great to one day unravel i guess
2: it's interesting about the doorway because yeah that's where it is and i think in the bakery
1: i want to talk about pliny the elder so i am a pompeii nerd i am the pompeii nerd of the podcast and we haven't been able to get to Pompeii yet we're gonna get there we're gonna we've got a whole season planned on sort of natural disasters but like I know a fair bit about the Plinies, so I just wanted to talk to you about what it was like creating him as a character making him more than just the guy who wrote natural history a lot of which is wrong and eventually met his fate (laughs) I mean a lot of it's right too we wouldn't know things without him but like there are some questionable things in there (laughs) yeah
2: absolutely
1: well yeah some of the
2: contraceptive stuff is just like wow please tell me nobody did that to try and not get pregnant Yes, absolutely. What a fascinating person. Yeah, I mean, extraordinary. The, the, you know, even if a lot of that knowledge was wrong, the fact that he was such a magpie and collected it all is pretty awe-inspiring. So In the Shadow of Vesuvius, A Life of Pliny by Daisy Dunn looks at both, both the Pliny's, um, Elder and Younger. It's a wonderful book. It does, however, present one of the problems of Pliny the Elder, which is we have very little about his actual life apart from, you know, how it ended. But the natural history, I don't know about you, Jen, but I just think the authorial voice is so human. Uh, Like sometimes he's quite pompous. But other times I hesitate to use the word adorable, but there is just something incredibly likable down to earth and personable he's just so interested. He's so curious about everything. And he's so eager to share his knowledge. So I guess when I was creating the character of Pliny the Elder, and for anyone, like, I know a few classicists were like, oh, please, I hope Pliny wasn't in the brothel. He's absolutely not in the brothel. Um, that's not that's not where he's based. But we do know that that Pliny the Elder did interview courtesans about their work and about their bodies. And, you know, he was just interested in everything about best type of bikini wax Obviously, obviously didn't call it a bikini wax but you know he was not a fan of the Hollywood let's put it that way and you know how how hair's removed and contraception and he just seems to have been a very curious man who's interested in absolutely everything I guess that was my my basis for him.
0: Do you remember anything about the contraception that he talks about?
2: I don't. Well, so some of the contraception stuff that's in the book is not based on Pliny, but just, you know, other other sources. Um, It was stuff like tying a cobweb to your arm or, you know, just like really, I can't even remember. It was just so random and ridiculous, you know, charms. And the only effective contraception was some people used a sort of very crude form of a diaphragm. inserting something that would act as a barrier method, but nothing that great, frankly. And they didn't understand women's menstrual cycles. So they had no idea when women were fertile or not.
1: One of the things that I found interesting is the the pimp who owns all the women who are at the brothel. And I don't want to give any spoilers, so I'm not going to say anything more except that in addition to being a pimp who traffics and enslaved people, he also has a job giving out sort of loans. He like he's like a loan shark?
2: Yeah, he's a loan shark and involved in kind of petty forms of crime. And yeah, he's almost like a mafia figure.
1: Yeah, he is. In your research, where did you come across sort of like information on that?
2: That was mainly just how I wanted Felix to be, because I just saw him as very very entrepreneurial and he's even more entrepreneurial and branching into all kinds of different stuff in book two because you know once you were either prostituted or a pimp you were classed as infamia and that kind of limited your options in life somewhat.
1: That's also why Lenistas, who we looked at two seasons ago in our arc on Spartacus like they were considered like one or two steps up from being pimps essentially because of the things that they did with their gladiators
0: yeah prostitution was a factor in the gladiatorial realm and also um one thing that really struck me as similar was just the way that the lenista and the pimp would have to sort of control this group of people and make them do things that they wanted them to do and sort of created it with the Linista, it's like you, they create this little cult
1: oh yes that's interesting yeah it's, t- it's like a cult. It's like a cult personality you have to have to be a successful lanista or I imagine a pimp.
2: And, and, and I, think, I think it's really interesting what you're saying about the gladiators because for the Romans the thing that was considered shameful is not at all I think what we consider. So it's like the lack of ownership over the body and the public display of the body and nudity and this is what's shameful about gladiators and and sex workers and why they're kind of this stigmatized group of, of people it's this lack of agency over over the body whether it's fighting or whether it's sex um but yeah i mean the figure of felix so i have a really love hate relationship with felix a bit like amara in the book in the sense that when we first meet him he's such a monster but he really is a lot more than a monster and I guess that was something I wanted to explore a lot in the book without either falling into the trope of the abusive man who can be redeemed if only somebody understands him well enough versus, you know, the out and out monster that's got no redeeming features. And I guess Felix is somewhere, he lies somewhere in the middle. And and I think I felt increasingly sympathetic to Felix writing it, which is not to say that I think he has any excuse for the absolutely appalling things that he does. But the more that we learn about his life and the more that I thought about what his life would likely have been like, the more parallels there are with Amara and what she's kind of obliged to do to survive. She becomes more and more like him in in many respects. And they have a lot of similarities and in a different world and in a different environment, they would have probably been quite similar people. You know, Felix is beyond the pale in so many respects but I also wanted to sort of show him as a survivor as well that he is he has chosen to survive by becoming abusive but that's also
0: because he had very few choices so one character that we haven't talked about yet is drusilla um so basically like drusilla is kind of the I guess, close to a Hetira character. She's an independent sex worker. She has been she's found her way out of the sort of enslaved sex work economy. And she's kind of doing she's independent now. She was also a really interesting character and kind of I guess you could say I don't know if it's the right word, but possibly a mentor to Amara in a way.
1: Absolutely. And and Drusil is really clever. You know, she's she's not only servicing her own customers. Um, she also has created an economy around being able to rent out her house and her patronage. And she reminds me so much of Phryne, who had a whole business of scarcity. And she was so good about keeping her uh, customers on the hook.
2: Yeah, so Drusilla was, was a really fun character to write, because as you say, she is she is much more independent she has much more agency yes of course you know her whole business model revolves about having to be pleasant to men and 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 providing sex and all the rest of it but she has some degree of choice over who she chooses as as clients you know she's not just obliged to take anyone and let's face it when people are richer at least you know you're getting paid more um so there's there's that aspect to amara to drusella sorry I think the thing about Amara and Drusilla's relationship as well is that they are genuinely friends, but they're both very business-minded women. So you know, Drusilla, her main interest is she's able to make money out of Amara through her boyfriend or patron or however you want to put it, her customer. Drusilla was a chance to sort of think about what Amara might be aiming towards, although Drusilla's also so if we look at kind of uh, in Roman comedy. The sort of figures like Drusilla, they probably have a slightly more precarious re- existence than I've given Drusilla. She's pretty economically stable. I've made her life maybe a bit better than it, it might have been, in all honesty. But you get to a point as well when you're writing this stuff and you're like, OK, let's not assume the worst here. Let's <laughs> Let's have a woman who's having not quite such a terrible time. And, you know, it's not it's not impossible, as you say, you know, women could make a good business out of
0: it we encountered this sort of trope of the wealthy courtesan, you know, like the wealthy Hatira who's very financially stable. And I think that that's a really good point that that is probably absolutely not the reality for a lot of these women, even the ones who were operating at the Hatira level.
2: And I think I think I based, you know, Drusilla and certainly what Amara would more realistically aim at is more like the the courtesans in Ovid's you know who are kind of living this slightly precarious existence of um of its books sorry (laughs) he's wrote one more than one you know trying to keep one customer happy while another one's jealous and and also in in some of the roman plays and there's bacchus the um courtesan in um really weird title i think it's called the self tormentor Um, In which she complains about the fact that, you know, everyone's always moaning that courtesans are greedy, but actually they have such a short window of time in which to make any money. And so they have to, they have to, you know, they have to be super thrifty and just, and Amara is absolutely obsessed with money in the book, very like Felix, um, her boss. Um, And yeah, and that's partly because, you know, she has a very limited amount of time in which, in which to make the money.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's gotten till maybe 25, and then she's done. And you just think about it, you're like, oh, okay, so at this point in time, like, (laughs) I would have no chance of making any money and life would be grim for me. Good to know, ancient Rome.
0: (laughs) We knew that already. I mean, look, this is, are you new here? (laughs) might have been a bit older I mean Ovid
2: talks about very attractive women of 35 saying you know you could you could you can you can have more fun with a courtesan of 35 because she's learnt more and she'll really enjoy herself (laughs) (laughs) all right Ovid I knew I liked you for so many reasons (laughs) the thing about Ovid is is that um I don't know he's so awful and he's so great at the same time it, it's just he's just sometimes the stuff that he says you're just like oh my word that's horrendous and then he's just very funny and he sort of defines problematic in terms of attitudes but such a fascinating writer and actually a huge influence in writing the wolf den was was the art of love you know when amara's a bit luckier later in terms of the clientele that very manipulative almost love some of What I was trying to think about in The Wolf Den, actually, it's not very classical, but thinking about, you know, our obsession with the pretty woman trope of being rescued by the wealthy man. And just I think we've all been there. You know, we've all swooned over Mr. Darcy or whatever and Pemberley. Like, who doesn't want a really rich, hot boyfriend, you know? But equally it's so kind of ingrained as this story of the age, power, money and balance and trying to think about that at its most extreme in terms of Amara who is actually enslaved. You know, if she met a wealthy guy who seemed nice, would that possibly resemble love in any shape or form, really?
0: We talk about that actually a lot um, in our sex worker episode about the sort of Cinderella trope. There are Hetera stories from ancient Greece that are kind of known as, like, this is one of the earliest Cinderella stories, you know, like the sort of rags to riches, caught the eye of the prince kind of thing. And you see it reflected in real stories of of real women who were sex workers because of this imbalance and because of how, as with a gladiator who, you know, there's a 101 shot of getting his rudis and getting freed— a sex worker would have maybe a similar shot of catching the eye of a wealthy man and having her status really elevated.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, and being pensioned off and being wealthy. And in some cases, not, you you know, you couldn't, if you were a, a very low status brothel worker, you couldn't possibly marry a member of the elite. But people did have kind of companions and courtesans and concubines who lived these parallel lives and might have kids and be looked after. So not impossible.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's just there's so many layers to this to this subject. It's so fascinating. So thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really fun.
2: Oh, it's been absolutely brilliant. Just had a blast talking to you both. Thank you so much for having me on. So, where can we find your book? So, The Wolf Den um is out in paperback from 2nd of September in the UK and the best place to find me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, but the best place is probably via my website which is dot
1: Thank you so much, Elodie. It's been such a pleasure. I always love being able to nerd out and talk about Pompeii. And
2: this has just been awesome. It's been so much fun. Thank you, Jen. And thank you, Jenny.